Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Judges chapter 5. As we continue in the book of Judges this evening, we're in Judges chapter 5 tonight. The historian writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered, Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings. Give ear, O rulers. I to the Lord. I will sing. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth quaked, the heavens also dripped, even the clouds dripped water. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord. This Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted. Travelers went by roundabout ways. The peasantry ceased. They ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose. Until I arose, a mother in Israel. New gods were chosen. Then war was in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel. The volunteers among the people, bless the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who travel on the road, sing. At the sound of those who divide the flocks among the watering places, there they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord, the righteous deeds for his peasantry in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and take away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then survivors came down to the nobles. The people of the Lord came down to me as warriors. From Ephraim, those whose root is in Amalek, came down. Following you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Maker, commanders came down. And from Zebulun, those who wield the staff of office. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the piping for the flocks? Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead remained across the Jordan. And why did Dan stay in ships? Asher sat at the seashore and remained by its landings. Zebulun was a people who despised their lives even to death, and Naphtali also on the high places of the field. The kings came and fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan, Atanak, near the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder in silver. The stars fought from heaven. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. O oh, my soul, march on with strength. Then the horse's hooves beat from the dashing, the dashing of his valiant steeds. Curse Miraz, said the angel of the Lord, utterly curse its inhabitants, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the warriors. Most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed is she of women in the tent. He asked her for water, and she gave him milk. In a magnificent bowl she brought him curds. She reached out her hand for the tent peg and her right hand for the workman's hammer. 
Then she struck Sisera, she smashed his head, and she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay. Between her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell dead. Out of the window she looked and lamented. The mother of Sisera threw the lattice. Why does his chariot delay in coming? Why do the hoofbeats of his chariots tarry? Her wise princesses would answer her. Indeed, she repeats her words to herself. Are they not finding? Are they not dividing the spoil? A maiden, two maidens for every warrior. To Sisera, a spoil of dyed work. A spoil of dyed work embroidered. Dyed work of double embroidery on the neck of the spoiler. Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord. But let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years. Now, we have before us tonight the song which Deborah and Barak sang after the Lord had granted them victory over Sisera. We saw that last week in chapter 4. And in this song, we should note at the outset, there are various incidental references to current events of Deborah's day and to contemporary circumstances. And some of those are a little bit hard for us to track down as far as being exactly sure what is being conveyed. And even though it could potentially be instructive to track down some of those things, or at least to attempt to track down some of those things and to elaborate on possible interpretations, we will not attempt to do that in great detail for every instance here tonight. But what we will do, though, is seek to catch the main drift of the song, which upon reasonable inspection, is clear enough. If we were to divide up this song into three parts, we could say roughly that verses 2 through 11 give praise to the Lord for the victory and contrast their victorious state with the dire straits in which they had previously been. Verses 12 through 23 give us lists of the hall of fame and the hall of shame, so to speak in regard to those who did go up to battle and those who did not. And then verses 24 through 31 give us a tale of two women, Jael and the mother of Sisera. So let's look at each part. First, we have praise and the previous dire straits. The song begins with the blessing of and the praise of the Lord. Specifically, Deborah praises the Lord for the fact that the people volunteered for this fight against the enemies of Israel. Now, again, when we get to verses 12 through 23, we'll see more of the specifics of this, who did go and who did not go. But for now, let's just think a little bit about this issue of volunteering. We know a little bit about the circumstances of this time period of the judges from a few of those statements later on in the book where it tells us that there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. National unity seems to have been minimal, and compulsory service across the nation as a whole does not seem to have been in existence. And so what we find is it seems more that local tribes were gathering together. Sometimes various tribes were banding together in these uh, particular instances that we find in the book of Judges. But often, national unity does not seem to have been in place. And so Deborah here recounts some of those who went up, and she praises the Lord 
for these volunteers who did so. There's no king to compel everyone in the nation to go up. And she is thankful to the Lord for these volunteers. And she recounts some of the Lord's past deeds for her people. She makes mention there in verse 4 of how the Lord went out from Seir and marched from the field of Edom. Now, Mount Seir was where the Edomites lived, and it's difficult to be absolutely certain, but this incident in question here may be in reference to an incident in, back in the book of Numbers of how the Lord accompanied his people after the Edomites refused to allow them to pass through their territory in Numbers 20, and how the Lord subsequently led the Israelites on to victoriously defeat the kings of Sihon and Og, as recorded in Numbers chapter 21. The Lord, in his judgment, had shaken his adversaries as he had shaken Mount Sinai, as we find there in verse 5. He had shaken Mount Sinai in Exodus 20 with his presence, and likewise he had shaken his enemies. And so it seems that what Deborah is doing is she's looking back to the past experiences of Israel and seeing uh, some, some circularity in the Lord's dealings, how he had dealt in the past and gave, given them victory and had shaken the mountains, so also now he had given them victory over their enemies and had shaken them as well. The point is that it seems to be that the Lord had shown up in power for Deborah and Barak and the people of that day just as he had done in the olden times in the life of the nation. And contrast this, this victory and the new life and vigor that had been breathed into them on account of this smashing of Sisera and his armies. Contrast that with what their condition had been like before. And we get a little bit of a picture of this in verses 6 through 8. Things were bad in Israel while Sisera and Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, were running the show. Public safety on the main roads was not to be had, and so people had to take to the back ways to avoid trouble. Maybe this was how Sisera and his 900 iron chariots were oppressing Israel. They were down there lurking on the main roads, and anybody that passed by would get robbed or assaulted or oppressed in some ways. We don't know for sure, but something was certainly going on that rendered the main routes of travel unsafe. When verse 7 speaks of the cessation of the, the peasantry or of the villagers in Israel, it's probably getting at the fact that not only were the highways not safe, but also unprotected country villages were not safe as well, and they were subject to the plundering of their homes and properties. And this could have triggered then an exodus from village life and drawn people to cities with some greater fortifications where they could at least... Uh, expect that they might be able to put up some kind of a fight or have their property somewhat protected as opposed to being out in a country village with virtually no protection from these hordes of Canaanites. Verse 8 points out the cause of the trouble was idolatry. It brought on war. And in the struggle, we see that there was an inability of the people to defend themselves. That seems to be what's being conveyed there in verse 8 when it says that not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Their oppressors seem to have disarmed them to a vast extent. Uh, We mentioned this a little bit in the past, but it seems like this happened repeatedly. And certainly the clearest example of this that we see in the scriptures is about halfway through the book of 1 Samuel where we're told uh, that the Philistines didn't even permit the Israelites to have a blacksmith. The Israelites had to take their 
farming tools down to the Philistines to get them, to get them sharpened because the Philistines didn't want any blacksmiths in Israel because they were worried that if there were blacksmiths, then there would be weapons of war. And so the oppressors seemed to have disarmed them to a vast extent. And so in light of all of this distress and trouble and the way in which God had now worked and given them victory, Deborah is full of praise to the Lord and full of gratitude in her heart for those who volunteered, as can be seen there in verse 9. In verse 10, she bids the people, apparently those of high position, those who ride on white donkeys and those who travel on the road, she bids them to sing. This is, this is D-Day, right? The countryside has begun to be liberated. The oppression is over. There is much to sing about. And as things open back up and as life returns to normal, even with something as mundane as the watering of the sheep, she anticipates that even in those mundane things, they will give praise to the Lord, that they would recount the praiseworthy, righteous deeds of the Lord, as we see in verse 11. At the sound of those who divide flocks among the watering places, there they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord, the righteous deeds for his peasantry in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the gates. So even something as simple as going out to water the sheep in peace and safety now becomes an occasion for reciting the great acts of the Lord. He has defeated their oppressors. And now the people can give praise to the Lord. And so what about us? Some of us here have grown up in Christian families and as such perhaps have not seen the evils of sin in such an up-close and personal manner as others. Some of us may not have had that blessing and may understand a little bit better from first-hand experience, the horrors that are brought on by sin. That was what Israel was suffering here. They were suffering the horrors that were brought on by sin, and it was an absolutely amazing difference to them once those horrors were gone. You can go about normal life now without fear, in peace and safety. What an amazing thing. And even so, it is that Christ redeems men and women from our slavery to sin. When Christ does that, the commonplace horrors that once permeated everyday life are gone. The drunkenness, the abuse, the violence, the immorality, and so on, those who have experienced the horrors brought on by wickedness understand what a great blessing it is to live in the absence of those horrors. They understand what a blessing it is to have a father who does not come home drunk, to have a mother who does not abuse them, and so on. Just like these Israelites now can recount the blessings of the Lord just because they're able to take care of their livestock in peace. So praise God if you have been delivered from that kind of life and brought into abundant life that is found in Christ. And this is not to suggest that everyone needs to have that kind of experience. Absolutely not. Those who have lived that kind of life would not wish that hardship and that suffering on anyone. Rather, for those of us who haven't experienced the horrors of sin in its full degree, we should look into the consequences of what sin are, of what life could be like, and praise God for His grace that has delivered us or delivered our family from such wickedness. And we should allow the mundane things of life to be the cause of praising God. 
peaceful meals spent with family, the blessings of just being able to hold a job, Sundays spent in church being edified by the Word of God, nights of peaceful sleep and rest because you're not fighting with your spouse or your family, and because you have a peaceful conscience, you're not haunted by the terrors of your sin and fears of the judgment of God, things like that should be the occasion which stir our hearts to recount the righteous deeds of God. Christ's death for us not only secures our right to eternal life, as we talked about this morning, it also secures these mundane blessings of life that we can enjoy them out from under the thumb of the tyranny of sin and Satan. Jesus said that he came that we might have life and might have it to the full. And surely we can bless the Lord, not only that we're heirs of eternal life because we're justified by his grace, but also that being freed from the tyranny and the dominion of sin and Satan, we can enjoy peaceful Sundays, peaceful nights sleep, peaceful times with our family. Surely those are on account of the righteous deeds of the Lord for us. And as we look ahead to verses 12 through 23, we see the halls of fame and of shame. The hall of fame is for those who volunteered and went. Implicit shame is heaped upon those who stayed at home. And an, actually an explicit curse is placed upon Maraz in verse 23. We see honorable mention given in verse 14 to the men of Ephraim, Benjamin, and Maker. Maker was the son of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And so the reference to uh, Maker seems to be a reference to the tribe of Manasseh or at least to a portion of the tribe. Some have thought, and I would tend to concur, that in this case it's likely referring to that portion of the tribe of Manasseh that settled on the west side of the Jordan. The tribe of Manasseh settled on both sides. You had one side that was remained on the eastern side with Reuben and Gad, and you had some that settled on the western side. And for reasons uh, that will appear later on here in the chapter, it seems that this is the tribe that was on the, the western side with most of the rest of the tribes. And apparently these people from Maker were willing to come and aid in the fight. And at the end of verse 14, we see praise given to the men of Zebulun who wield the staff of office, as the NASB translates it. ESV called them those who bear the lieutenant's staff. More literally, these are those who handle the pen of the writer. And so what's going on here? Well, historically, this was understood to be in reference to scribes, who may have been more skilled in writing than in the arts of warfare, but seemingly, perhaps even they took up arms and went in and joined the battle. One man poetically paraphrased it by saying, The scribes of Zebulun and learned men, to wield the sword, laid down the pen. I think we can all agree that there are some instances where actually the pen is not mightier than the sword, and you need to put the pen down and pick up the sword and fight. Likewise, in verse 15, we see the, the men of Issachar mentioned as those who showed up to fight. However, when we get to the end of verse 15, the, the picture changes. We find that among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. And while that phrase, great resolves of heart, may be a, a little bit ambiguous to us, so we wonder, well, what, what exactly does this mean? It seemed like it could go either way. But as we look to the very next verse, the picture is filled out for us. Instead of going to fight, they were sitting among the sheepfolds. It seemed that Reuben was staying at home debating about what to do at best or 
intent on staying at home and looking after their own interests at worst. And the reference to Gilead in verse 17 seems to be in reference to that portion of Manasseh that was on the eastern side of the Jordan. Again, Manasseh is on both sides, and so Gilead seems to be that side that was on the eastern side of the Jordan, and they were not going down to the fight. They, along with the tribe of Reuben, were hesitant to stand up. And that's a far cry, if you think back in the history of the nation, from the behavior of these tribes when they first conquered the Promised Land. Because you remember how Reuben and Gad and that portion of Manasseh had said to Moses, hey, let us stay here on the eastern side of the Jordan. And Moses was a little bit concerned about this at first and said, well, wait a minute. Are you guys just going to stay here and let, let the other tribes do all the fighting? They said, no, 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 we'll, we'll build sheep pens for our livestock and we'll go out and we'll make sure that the land is conquered before we come back. This is a far cry now. Once they were willing to build sheep pens and go out before the sons of Israel in conquest, and now all they want to do is stay at home among the sheep pens and do nothing to help their kinsmen. The tribes of Asher and Dan are much the same. They seem to have been too immersed in their maritime trade interests to lend a helping hand. Their conduct here reminds me of the words of an old Tom T. Hall song in which he said, We've got too many do-goods and not enough hard-working men. We've got too many hands out and not enough lending a hand. In other words, he's lamenting the fact that, that we have too many people who philosophize and think about what's the right thing to do, but when it comes right down to it, they're not willing to stand up, get down, and get dirty and help. He said, I appreciate your sympathy and I believe in missionary work, but a little bending down and picking up your brother wouldn't hurt. And the, the point is, it seems that that is very much what Deborah is talking about here. She's like, where were you guys at? We needed you. You weren't here. And the worst offender of all seems to have been Maraz, the inhabitants of which are cursed by the angel of the Lord in verse 23, because they did not come to the help of the Lord against the warriors. And the best suggestion about Maraz seems to be that it was a village near to the scene of the fighting and the inhabitants didn't turn out and didn't show up to, in the fight against Sisera. We find a clear contrast between these who didn't show up with the attitude of the men of Zebulun as described in verse 18. We're told there that they despised their lives even to death. And what that means is that they were willing to hazard everything even life itself was not dear to them. They were willing to lay it all on the line. And they're commended for it. We see in this the, the goodness of joining in the Lord's cause and serving him willingly while the battle is raging. Now, obviously, God is sovereign. All power in heaven and on earth is subject to his command. He determines the end from the beginning. But yet, even as it was good of the Israelite warriors to join the Lord in this battle, even so it is today in the battles which the church and people of God face. And so for one, think about evangelism. The church in evangelism goes out to battle with the forces of darkness for the souls of the lost. God is sovereign, of course. All his elect will come to faith. But how wicked and faithless is it for us to sit on the sidelines and let others go out and fight in the battle? I myself am not completely innocent of all blame in this regard. How many times... Have I sat on the sidelines and not gone out to battle? How about you? And it's like the Reubenites sitting among the sheepfolds when they should have been in the fight. Likewise, when the church of Christ needs people to stand up 
and make their voices heard in opposing error and standing for the truth, we need to be ready to stand up and make our voice heard for the glory of Christ. One time, several years ago, I had the opportunity to meet uh, an older lady. She was probably in her uh, 70s, maybe 80s. And interestingly, she was the the daughter of a Presbyterian pastor. And this, uh, her father had studied under J. Gresham Machen back uh, either at, at Princeton or maybe maybe in his early days at, at Westminster Theological Seminary, and uh, her father had, had ministered in a, in a Presbyterian denomination that was that was going liberal, and she told me about her dad and his efforts for the truth, and that they'd be in, in Presbytery meetings or or whatever these these church meetings, and he'd he'd be talking to guys, and the guys like, yeah yeah, I'll, I'm going to vote with you when it when it comes to a vote, and he said that that when it came time for a vote, these guys would, well, I got to make a phone call, and so I'd step out of the room and. Make a phone call, or I, I gotta, I gotta go put some money in the parking meter. And they, they, they talked like they were going to show up for the fight. They didn't show up. Christ calls his people to stand up when the battle is raging, and so it is that we read of the people of our Lord in Revelation twelve eleven that they overcame him, that is Satan, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death, right? How similar is that description there of Christ's people to this description here of the men of Zebulun and Naphtali in verse 18, who despised their lives even to death. They didn't care. They knew that their cause was right and they were willing to lay it all out there on the line. So it must be with us in the cause of Christ. This is not to say that we must all fight in the exact same battles, so that we must all fight in the exact same way, or that you are shrinking from your duty if you're not doing the exact same thing that I am doing, or vice versa. But what we must not do is sit back in the day of battle and let others do the fighting. We have to join in the fight according to the grace of God given to us. It is said of Christ in Psalm 110, verse 3, Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. And may it be so of us as well. On April 23, 1910, Theodore Roosevelt gave a speech at the Sorbonne in Paris, and the title of that speech was called Citizenship in a Republic, but it's more commonly known by one of the lines in the speech called The Man in the Arena. And Roosevelt said this, he said, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, And who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. So brothers and sisters in Christ, the victory is ours through Christ. And this doesn't mean that every earthly endeavor that we undertake will be successful. Many of them will not be successful. But it does mean that the final victory is ours. And so why would we not go into the arena and fight? Finally, in those last verses of the chapter, verses 24 to 31, we read this tale of two women, Jael and the mother of Sisera. 
Deborah is quite graphic in her description of J.L. going so far as to say that she smashed Sisera's head. And as such, in this way, J.L. is a type of the great seed of the woman who was to come, our Lord Jesus Christ, who crushed the head of the serpent. And as we mentioned last week, J.L., for all we can tell, is portrayed positively here in the scriptures. And as such, our assessment of her ought to be positive as well. Dale Ralph Davis might have been on to something when he said, perhaps many of us in the West cannot rejoice when God smashes oppressors because we have never been so oppressed or crushed by tyranny on a significant scale. That's why we frequently fail to appreciate texts like this. We can't really understand them from our study chairs, our padded pews, or from our recliners beside our cozy fireplaces. Nevertheless, Deborah clearly votes for J.L. Naturally, you can disagree. If so, you can claim more refinement, but less faith. So J.L. is victorious. And meanwhile, Deborah depicts Sisera's mother back in Harasheth Hagoyim, wringing her hands, thinking about why Sisera is taking so long in getting back, and listening to the reasons given by the princesses. These women are thinking about the spoils of war, how the warriors will rape the women and carry off the fine embroidery. And Deborah is clearly mocking these women, mocking Sisera's mother, mocking these princesses who are speculating and worried about a warrior who will never return. Sisera is done for. And Deborah's song ends with those fitting words in verse 31, pronouncing her desire that all of the Lord's enemies would perish like Sisera and that those who love the Lord would be like the rising of the sun in its might. And though a physical death like Sisera certainly does not come to all of the Lord's enemies, nevertheless, they will all be crushed, and in the end, their fate will be much worse than having their head crushed when they're suffering the judgment of God in eternity. But those who love the Lord will fare quite differently. She says, but let those who love the Lord be like the rising of the sun in its might. She's expressing her wish that those who love the Lord would be glorious, would be mighty, bright, unstoppable, irresistible. And though in this world, from an external perspective, God's people are often weak and despised, nevertheless, by God's grace, they are made strong, steadfast, and immovable. Isaiah tells us that those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength and mount up with wings as eagles. Here in this life, those who love the Lord, though we are weak, we do shine forth as lights in the world. While we hold fast the words of life and while we hold those words forth to others, and in the age to come, it will be seen that the Lord's people, those who love the Lord, will shine with brilliance. And so we're told by Daniel in Daniel 12:3, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And our Lord Jesus picked up on those words of Daniel in his conclusion to the parable of the wheat and the tares, Matthew 13, 43, when Jesus said, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. This is what awaits us, shining forth as the sun in the kingdom of our Father. And so, beloved... Let's love the Lord. And in that love, let's join his cause in the battle here on earth, knowing that in eternity and even now, it will make us radiant and strong like the sun.
the God, all praise and glory. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are weak and that too often we have had opportunities to join in your cause and serve you. We behave like the men of Reuben, or perhaps even like the village of Maros. Lord, we ask your mercy, and Lord, we ask your strength, because we know that unless your Spirit strengthens us, we will continue to behave this way. But we ask, Lord, that you would raise us up, that you would strengthen us, that we would despise our lives and our reputations and whatever else we might hold dear, that we would lay it all on the line for the glory of Christ, knowing that being his and serving him is the greatest honor of all. We ask your help and we ask your grace. We thank you for the promise that we will indeed shine forth like the sun. In Jesus' name, amen.